ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallack. On today's edition of Eco Report, Eco architect and placemaker Mark Lakeman invites us to apply urban permaculture to rehumanize public spaces by tapping into the natural economy of the universe, as they have been doing in Portland's city repair project for almost 30 years. That's coming up later in the broadcast in part three of a conversation with environmental correspondent Zero Rose. And now for your environmental reports. Michigan is decarbonizing. The Michigan legislature is poised to pass one of the most comprehensive clean energy initiatives in the country, requiring 100% of electric power to come from carbon-free sources by 2035. The ambitious legislative agenda implements Governor Gretchen Whitmer's Michigan Healthy Climate Plan. Getting less attention is the fact that it will also provide long-term benefits to Michigan's water resources by significantly reducing pollution from burning fossil fuels. A century of burning coal has resulted in a widespread pollution of the Great Lakes. Mercury, a powerful neurotoxin released from coal-fired power plants, is responsible for 57% of all mercury present in the Great Lakes, resulting in official advisories to limit consumption of Great Lakes fish. For many years, coal ash was often dumped into pits very near to the Great Lakes. Burning natural gas is said to be quote-unquote cleaner than coal, but like coal releases nitrogen oxides, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxides, all of which inevitably impact Michigan's surface waters. Michigan's plan is to make improvements in many year, many areas. Listeners can see the plan by looking for Michigan's Healthy Climate Plan. For power generation, the plan focuses on wind and solar. The levelized cost of electricity for new onshore wind and solar resources that are coming online in 2023 was $25 per megawatt megawatt hour compared with $34 per megawatt hour for newly combined cycle natural gas units. Adding new wind and solar resources is comparable and in many ways, in many cases, cheaper to the cost of running existing power plants. The Michigan plan is very different from anything that has emerged from Indiana's legislature. Thus far, Indiana is still determined to burn coal. The New York Times reported good news for the endangered green turtle. Green sea turtles had an exceptional nesting season on Florida's beaches in 2023, with volunteers counting more than 74,300 nests, according to preliminary data. 
That beats the previous record from 2017 by a staggering 40%. The increase is an explosion and a well welcome surprise, said Simona Seriani, a research scientist who coordinated the annual survey for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. The count will continue through October 31st. Sea turtles don't reach sexual maturity until their 20s or 30s. So what Florida is seeing now is very likely the result of conservation measures put in place after green sea turtles were listed under the Endangered Species Act in 1978, Dr. Seriani said. But researchers aren't ready to claim a conservation victory just yet. Those impressive nesting numbers are just half the story, according to to Jeanette Wyniken, a professor at Florida Atlantic University who has studied nesting sea turtles for more than three decades. That's because more than most creatures, sea turtles are particularly attuned to a warming climate. In fact, the sex of a baby sea turtle isn't determined by its DNA, but by the temperature of the sand in which its egg developed. Cooler temperatures mean males. Warmer ones mean more females. According to Dr. Wyniken, who has been monitoring incubation temperatures and sex ratios in the nest of green sea turtles in Palm Beach County since 2005, in recent years, the proportion of male green sea turtle hatchlings has dwindled substantially. In the past few seasons, between 87% and 100% of the hatchlings she has tested have been female. In the short term, such a skewed sex ratio could actually be a boon to green turtles. A breeding female lays between two and nine clutches of about 110 eggs each in a season. And a greater proportion of females in any given generation means more nests in the sand 20 years down the road. That is, Dr. Wyniken said, as long as there's enough boys to service the girls. With locations favorable for growing grapes for wine expanding northward as the planet warms, is it possible that wineries in Scandinavia will increase? Actually, we might start with the question of whether Vikings grew grapes for wine. It has been thought that grapes were not grown in Denmark before the medieval period, but the local The local, Denmark, reports that strontium isotope analysis of two grape seeds recovered at the site of the Viking settlement at Tissu, or Tisso in English, suggests that they may have been grown on the main Danish island of Zealand. That island is warmed by the Gulf Stream. Norway is now warm enough for wine grapes. There are already half a dozen commercial wineries in Norway. A wine growers association has already founded, been founded and has a bevy of amateur winemakers as members. The grapes grown include Solaris grapes for white wines and sparkling wines and Rondo for red, rosé and sparkling wines. In addition, other hybrids such as Leon Millet, Cabernet Cortis and early Pinot Noir. The scale of sales of wines from Norway is small. Beer and vodka, and of course, atkvavit, a uh, schnapps uh, based on with anise flavor, are the only alcoholic beverages produced in large quantity in Norway. In the southernmost parts of Denmark and Sweden, the climate allows new grape regions to emerge. Sweden is an official wine country since 1999. A major utility in northwest Indiana has plans to greatly reduce its carbon footprint. 
The company is the Northern Indiana Public Service Company, NIPSCO, which headquarters in Merrillville, Indiana. One goal is to be coal-free by 2028. A current project is called the Dunn's Bridge Solar, a 265 megawatts facility located in Jasper County, Indiana, near NIPSCO's R.M. Schaefer Generating Station, which is expected to be retired in 2025. This facility is the first of a two-part solar project currently under construction and is expected to produce 435 megawatts of solar paired with 75 megawatts of battery storage. These two projects are expected to generate approximately $59 million in additional tax revenue for Jasper and Stark counties over the life of the facility. NIPSCO's electric generation transition toward a more balanced and reliable portfolio, including its plans to retire all its remaining coal-fired units, is driven by real-world data and economics. NIPSCO has also performed ongoing analysis of current market conditions and changes in market rules, which support NIPSCO's current generation transition path. The company plans to be coal-free by 2028, driving a reduction in carbon emissions by more than 90% by 2030, compared to, to a 2005 baseline. NIPSCO's current wind projects are performing well, and 100% of the excess power sales currently goes back to customers, which is nearly $60 million since 2021. Going coal-free is one of the most Going coal-free in one of the most polluted areas of the state should also mean fewer deaths from air pollution. And now we turn to Zero Rose as he asks Mark Lakeman of Communitecture about the inception of Portland City Repair Project, a grassroots uprising that began reclaiming street intersections as civil centers by gathering neighbors to rehumanize public spaces, asserting cultural agency by painting street murals, planting gardens, erecting solar tea stands, building earthen benches benches, and whimsical art installations, all without permission from local authorities. The full interview is available on the station's website as an eco-report extra and can be found by typing in eco-report extra at wfhb.org. And you guys are reestablishing these sort of civic nodes in neighborhoods, putting some whimsy, some art into the situation, and showing it as a place of connection, like the, the things you do with intersections, where you put a bench on one corner or a solar tea stand on the other. I don't know if you guys are the inception of the little libraries. That is, that is a kind of a big thing around town now. And now people are sort of doing little pantries and little uh like thrift stores some some sort of official or sanctioned and some not and uh you want to tell the story a little bit to people that aren't familiar with how city repair got going the challenges you were faced with and how you overcame those sure yeah um yeah so city repair uh you know it, it it started in the mid 90s as a kind of a movement and an organization. And at the same time, it was really an, also an expression of the momentum 
of um, community and building and civic participation culture in the city of Portland. So like city repair is famous for um, creating these legal ordinances that have opened up public space, like 6,000 roadway miles in Portland and 22,000 street intersections are all um, now available for free for communities to remake them on their own initiative and with their own resources. So all the intersections in every residential zone can all be transformed into public squares. And all the streets that connect those intersections can all be creatively transformed by the people who live right there. So <clears throat> we've managed, first of all, we were understanding that we're living in this giant colonial infrastructure. That's, it, it's really accurate to call it totalitarian because it's designed from an absolutely gigantic top-down place, boom, over like the entire continent. Rome, Roman colonialism was was um, was uh, adopted in 1785 by the Continental Congress in the form of the National Land Ordinance, reauthorized over and over again as we conquered more and more native land, um, expanding eventually all the way to the Pacific Coast, and. Uh, it's an interesting thing I found out a few years ago that my own family was in the first wave of colonists um, that was authorized by the Continental Congress to, to, to install the Roman grid. And when I went to the museum that tells that story, I saw my own ancestors right there uh, on the list of the original colonists, which is really fascinating. Um, so, yeah, the National Land Ordinance is an interesting document. Um, and I, I won't go on too much about it, except to say that there's three documents that essentially laid out the Western Hemisphere. And the one south of the USA border um, is the law of the Indies by the Spanish. And it affected everything all the way to the tip of South America. And then the National Land Ordinance affected the United States and the Dominion Land Survey affected Canada. And they're all essentially the same. They're all based on the, um, on the system of basically compartmentalization and commodification of the world um, through Roman colonialism. And, uh, but in the case of the United States, unlike the other two documents, there's no provision for public space. Like in Canada, there was um, a mandate for public space, especially in the Spanish law of the Indies. There was a specific provision made so that every city in town would have a certain number of plazas per capita, per number of people, per scale. And in the case of the United States, we really just literally, we took what the Spanish had done and then we whited out the provision of the public square. And the reason that we did that was because the Continental Congress had just witnessed how vital public space was in our struggle against the British. And they thought, well, if we enable that feature to happen in the program, the civic program of our colonial cities, um, then very likely the West Coast will break away from us just like we did from England. That's, that's the rationale as I understand it. So here we are living in these cities that are actually designed to omit public space and they're, as Noam Chomsky breaks down really beautifully, we um, we are designed in a very strange way. We are a colony, like we we began as a colony, 
and then we broke away and aspired to become an empire. So we we had we already were systematized, and then we further systematized in a way that would basically be to the advantage of the ruling wealthy class going forward. So our, our society is its its patterns and processes are very different than in other countries that are more culturally focused. Like, like for instance, in a neighborhood, one way that this plays out is you're sitting there watching all of these processes of change that feel invasive, and it, it's become so normal, you don't ask yourself, well, why doesn't the community have its own processes of change that are dynamic? Like, why don't we work with each other to make these changes happen? Why does it always happen as an exploitive violence that's coming at us from the exterior. And that's just, it's weird. It's, it's, an, it's an aberration in human history to live this way. And we don't realize that. We also don't realize that it's an aberration to walk around feeling alienated from other people and not have a single damn place to sit in your entire neighborhood. You know, there, like there should be spaces for just being there. And, and, and enjoying the passage of time with other human beings. Um, so really weird in the sense that we don't have those spaces and we have the fewest in all the world in our communities. Yeah, I remember seeing a meme online. People love to look at it because it's it's a bench that's sculpted. It may, it's, looks like an open book. So the back of the bench is one side of the book and then the the seat curves, you know, is the is the other side of the book. And then you go, oh, that's cool. And then somebody says, actually, you look at the curve of it and everything. It's made to make it so nobody could sleep on that bench. And I, I guess I don't even know how long you could sit on it with the way, you know, ergonomically. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> even... Uh, they do employ some art in some of the ways that they discourage, you know, people from loitering yeah. vacancy. That bench was built by my best friend. Oh, really? Pedro. Yeah. Is, is that the, the true situation of it, that it was actually made to uh, not to not be able to sleep on? Yeah, it was built at a campus where they were afraid of that kind of thing. And at the same time, it's sitting under this huge porch with all the surface area where anyone could just sleep on the floor if they wanted to. So, yeah, strange. Yeah, lay behind it. <laughs> you know, if um, I can understand the fears that people have. I mean, I, I understand. And at the same time, if you do things that are outward and... Um, basically extend a hand people will respond situations where you actually bother to communicate with houseless people and you offer them an amenity um they're very happy to and i'm generalizing with a lot of confidence houseless people are really happy to um take care of something that take care of something for someone they 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 want to be entrusted and they want to they want to have responsibilities. So if if somebody says to them, will you please take care of this bench? You, I see you here a lot. You use this bench. Would you please take care of it and make sure that nothing bad happens? When you ask somebody who has nothing to um, have a role, um, 
it's a it's just shocking maybe for some people how how they will respond because at least they have that they have a sense of a, a belonging there now as they've been asked to take care of something that's what's really going on and when we when we just treat people like we should be afraid of them and we dehumanize our own space we impoverish everyone's experience and we don't let good things happen and i, I think it was the um I think you had said in a talk I saw at the Unitarian Church years back that there was Native American leader that uh, told you guys to just go ahead and start doing things and stop asking for permission. Yeah, I quote this guy Elk River a lot. He was a Cheyenne roadman, um, traveling Cheyenne uh, shaman, you might call him, and. Uh, yeah, he helped, he helped get the whole project started and said some of the most beautiful stuff to us to inspire us. Um, like, I mean, one of the most wonderful, profound things that he ever said was, uh, you know, and this was in the context of lots of discussions, dialogues, where I got to ask a bunch of questions. And he was like, I guess he was saying how we divide ourselves, not just from each other, but we divide ourselves internally because of all these fears. We're constantly acting from fear. So we're always making divisions, we're always compartmentalizing and separating ourselves from each other. But he's like, you do it to your own interior world as well. And he said, if you really want to change the world, then you have to start acting like the natural economy of the universe itself. And if you notice, like every time you draw a breath, who's making the air? It might be God. Whoever, like whenever you whenever you draw a breath, it's there for free. Like your body is a gift of love. Nobody charged you for it. You know, the world that you're on, like is this constantly self-regenerating system that's delivering you, delivering your entire reality for free. So if you can start acting from a place of reciprocity yourself, where you just share, 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 everything is ultimately going to be okay. But only if you can get into it, like this is what he said, get into a groove with the universe. Like we're the only ones that are really screwing up the world. Everybody else uh, isn't. Like all the other species and the entire planetary biosphere is actually in this whole self-regulating pattern that's fearless and we're the ones that are screwing it up for our, our for ourselves and we're we're the greatest danger so like yeah getting into a groove with the universe i mean it's so beautiful to think like the, you know like that metaphor um feel the force that's what it's talking about work with the force of nature itself in the things that you do and the choices that you make and so if nature itself is outward and endlessly sharing and doesn't keep track of anything and there's no like you know, there's no spreadsheet about it. It's just constantly abundant and constantly sharing and cycling and reciprocating, regenerating. Um, then be like that. Liberate yourself. Like, you know, if you're a selfish person, just stop it and um, feel the power of, of liberating your creativity. Like you actually, one thing I know for sure, when I act like that, I liberate my creativity so that there's just no end of what I have to share once I start letting it go and sharing. This is In Nature.
The Cuban toady is a small, colorful bird that is among the 30 species of birds that can only be seen in Cuba. The toady is just over 4 inches tall and weighs a mere 2 ounces. It has a large head relative to its small body size. The toady has a vivid green neck and back, a red throat, pink on its flanks, and a blue ear patch. This bird is common throughout the island, residing in a wide variety of habitats. At times, the Cuban toady may be difficult to see, but this tiny bird constantly calls from its hidden perch with a soft, rolling trill. Toady pairs nest in a long tunnel in a clay embankment or in a tree cavity. The entrance, tunnel, and nest are lined with grass, lichen, and feathers. The female lays three to four eggs, and both parents incubate and raise their young. Toadies primarily eat insects, but may also include fruit, spiders, and small lizards. The toady is subject to predation by the introduced Indian mongoose and by people. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallek. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Enjoy pumpkin carving and learn about three sisters planting techniques on Saturday, October 21st from 5.30 to 7 p.m. at Winslow Woods Park. While you carve a pumpkin, you'll learn about Three Sisters' companion planting technique that plants squash, corn, and beans all together. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. You can preserve a preserve and volunteer to weed wrangle on Wednesday, October the 25th from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Canyon Forest Nature Preserve in Greene County. Learn how to identify and control invasive plants. Registration is required at sycamorelandtrust.org. Get scared during spooky folklore stories at Spring Mill State Park on Friday, October 27th from 8 to 8.30 p.m. Meet Anthony at the Lakeview Activity Center Amphitheater for some spooky local folklore tales told around the campfire. Join the Uplands Network of the Sierra Club for a seven-mile hike on the Sycamore Loop Trail in the Hoosier National National Forest on Saturday, October the 28th from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. There will be a stop for lunch while you enjoy the beautiful fall foliage. Register at maryrrdn at gmail.com or call 812-320-9322. Take a spooky full moon hike on Saturday, October 28th from 9.30 to 11 p.m. at Leonard Springs Nature Park. During the hike, you'll learn about the history and folklore surrounding the full moon and Hallow's Eve. Register at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. 
And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noel Herhusky Schneider. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshleck. And this is Eco Report. Thank you for listening. been listening to the eco report a volunteer powered production of community radio wfhb in bloomington indiana available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org eco report is your independent ecologically inspired news source for south central indiana bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear send your comments suggestions and story ideas directly to the eco report staff the email address is earth at wfhb.org that's earth at wfhb.org